0: Well, good morning. Um, so we're a much smaller group this morning, so I assume either I have motivated everybody who wasn't already a member to go join the new members class, uh, or I've offended everybody away. And It's also possible that some people are late this morning, um, but we are going to pick up where we left off last week. Um We'll clean up, wrap up, talking about uh, our duties to our pastors, um, and then I'm going to spend the rest of the time today, and probably going a little bit into next week, on this idea of making vows and oaths to one another, um, and whether that's biblical, what it means, and what it should mean for us in the context of one-anothering um, together in our church, and uh, so let me open by asking, how'd you do on our... We ended last week talking about praying for our pastors and their wives. How'd you do this week? Uh, spending time praying for our pastors and, our, and their wives. Um, these quotes were on the slide last week. The first one's from John MacArthur, who said, How perilous the condition of that minister then, whose heart is not encouraged, whose hands are not strengthened... And who is not upheld by the prayers of his people. And then one of the other authors that we've been uh, looking at said, when churches cease to pray for their ministers, ministers will no longer be a blessing to their churches. And we talked last week specifically about praying uh, for protection, for wisdom, and for energy and enthusiasm in their work. So what I'd like to do this morning is for each of us individually to do that. Uh, So I'm just going to open us in some silent prayer, and I would ask you to pray specifically for Matt and Kristen and their children and for Tim and Lainey uh, for each of these things. So let's all pray uh, ourselves for our pastors. Lord, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. So the uh, I, I gave you, there were handouts in the back. Um, if you missed them, uh, maybe Owen, if I could ask you to go grab the stacks and just see if anybody didn't get those two handouts. Thank you. Um, so one of them is the same handout that I gave you last week that has uh, the long quote, uh, a challenge for us to think about guarding our pastor's reputations and their good name. Uh, that's two pages of it. The other two pages, one is a, um, a call to prayer for, pray for our pastors and has some uh, specific things that a pastor says, pray for me about these things that I found challenging uh, and I thought a good way to think about how we model our prayers for our pastors and their families. Um, And then the other one is my kind of summary slide of some of the things that we are called to do, our duties, uh, I'm suggesting to our pastors as they minister to us. So um, that's that one. And then the other handout is from the Westminster Confession of Faith about vows and oaths, and we'll be talking about that today. But. From the list of duties to our pastors, the one that we haven't uh, really spent a whole lot of time on is the one about guarding their reputation. Um, And as a reminder, last week uh, I was trying to emphasize that this is when when I suggest that and the authors uh, suggest that we should guard our pastor's reputation. This is not a call to cover up sin. We certainly ought not to cover up our pastor's sins. It's not a, uh, a, a. It is not suggesting that the pastor is the king of the church and we are all to submit blindly to the pastor's grand authority over us. But it is to recognize that our pastors are in a position, a public position of leadership in the church, and that makes them a target for the world and for the enemy of the church, Satan. And that we in particular ought to be concerned about standing with our pastors. So some verses, uh, and I went very quickly over these last week, um, and I'll spend just a little bit more time on them. Here's where I think this principle comes from, particularly in the New Testament. So in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about when he is unjustly accused that no one in the church stood up for him. And he's clearly hurt by this. In Philippians 2.29, he talks about men, he he, uh, commends some men who are coming to the Philippian church who are bringing Paul's letter to them. And he says, these are men who devote themselves to working for the church. And he says, we should honor these men. In Galatians, let's turn to Galatians 4.15 real quick. Because this one I found somewhat, well, they're all interesting. So if you start back in verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So he's being accused having left Galatia. He's being accused now of having been a burden to them. And he's he's saying, why isn't anybody standing up for me? You know when I was there, you cared for me. And you appreciated me, and now that I'm gone, what has become of this blessing that you gave to me when I was there? Again, he seems frustrated and hurt that the church is not standing up for him against these accusations. Third John, uh, the apostle John is talking about uh, people who are opposing the, the teaching of the apostles and says they're talking wicked nonsense against us. Again, back in 2 Timothy, Paul is complaining to Timothy, All who are in Asia turned against me when he left. Later, this is that that same verse, uh, I don't know why I put it in here twice, sorry, uh, from the first one, where Paul is unjustly accused and then he says, No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And in 1 Corinthians... Uh, let's turn to that one as well because it's a little bit more complicated too. First Corinthians chapter four, beginning at verse nine, he says, "For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as last of all, so as the lowest, as last of all, like men sentenced to death." because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. What's he saying? This is a sort of strange passage, frankly. What's he saying to the Corinthians? I'm obviously suggesting it relates to guarding their reputation, but I might not be reading it right. what I think it means, Uh, I think he's almost being sarcastic. That's probably too strong a word for it. But when he says, "We're, we're, we're fools, we are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He's pointing out that the Corinthians in their church, Corinth is a rich city, they're doing okay. They're held in honor. They are well cared for. They have their needs met, and the apostles don't. Those who are working for for uh, full time for the church have become a spectacle to the world. They're being embarrassed. They're being treated like fools. They're being uh, treated poorly. And in verse 14, he's saying, I'm not writing to make you ashamed. I'm not trying to make you feel bad that we're treated this way and you're doing okay, but to admonish you as my beloved children. So I think he is making the point that these men who are working full time, devoting themselves to the church, are in a position where they are a target. And those of us who are not in that position, I think he's suggesting, he's admonishing us to be particularly attentive to caring for them and recognizing this position that they're in and standing beside them and uplifting them in their position. Mark? I'll just give you a, a different kind of Sure. I'm looking at the beginning of chapter 4
1: and it's showing that the people in the church just are not humble and the way that they present themselves. So Paul's giving them a uh, a comparison
0: of this is how you should act. To mm. be more like us. To be more humble like the apostles. Marvel, we don't get more, and you
1: need to be more like that. I shame you, but to exhort you.
0: Mm. Yeah, so maybe the emphasis is more on how they behave to behave more like the apostles. it
1: doesn't negate the point
0: Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's fair and accurate. So then, uh, yeah, Erica. I was just going to, like, kind of tag on what Mark was saying. I that, like, the closing of
2: this section, like, in verses 18 through 20, like, you see that Paul's exit like, it's almost like the intent of this section. Paul's exhortation is, like, almost to say, become as I am. Like, mm-hmm. like, it's no good, like, he's not really calling for them to build
0: him up as much as he's calling for him to humble themselves. Okay. That's the of the authorial. That's my personal belief about the authorial intent of mm-hmm. this section. Okay. That's why I think it's valuable to talk about it. Uh, so I gave you this quote a couple of weeks ago, uh, but we haven't had a whole lot of time to think through it. The reason, part, of, part of why I keep coming back to it is because it's been a challenge to me as I've been thinking about what is it that uh, we should be doing to care for our pastors. And it's on the front and back side of your handout there. So I'll read it, and then I'll ask for your thoughts on it. So this guy is a pastor. He was, uh, he's writing in the last half of the uh, 1800s. Uh, he was a, a Presbyterian minister in uh, Philadelphia. And he says, It is the duty and interest of every church member to defend the good name of his pastor. Not only his name for integrity but also his reputation for industry and fidelity in his office. The good name of the pastor is his power. With it, he is mighty for good. Without it, he is shorn of both honor and strength. And that good name of the minister is liable to be assailed by the ungodly world, so as to injure the cause through him. As a public man and a recognized leader in the cause of Christ, he's a target for the arrows of the enemy from many a quarter. Let him be ever so upright and watchful, yet these shafts of detraction will be shot at him. He will at times be condemned even by Christians when the motives for his actions are not seen or understood, and when, if they were, they would be praised rather than censured. By all the members of the church, therefore, the good name of the minister should be regarded as a sacred trust and should be defended by them as tenderly as their own, for their own and their children's interests are closely connected with it. Then he goes on to say, There's a habit often indulged in without thought of criticizing the minister's sermon, and that sometimes before children and those who are indifferent or unfriendly to religion, a habit that does much harm. It destroys the effect of that sermon for good. It tends to produce prejudice against minister and message. It is unjust as well as unkind, for there is no minister who does not sometimes preach an inferior sermon. He often must come short of his own standard even. By bodily ailments or temporary distractions or by various calls upon his time, it is often rendered absolutely impossible for him to make the needed preparation, and the sermon has to suffer. Allowance should be made for this. And let it be hinted that the fault may be in the hearer rather than in the message. So again, what I don't think he means, and I, what I don't think we should should assume he means, is we should protect the minister's reputation and always say he, he gave the best sermon ever when that's not true, or that we should cover up that. This sentiment has certainly been used in the church in the United States to cover up great evil, wickedness, and sin, and abuse by pastors, and that is wrong. And I don't think that's what Dr. Murphy is suggesting. So let's put that aside and and agree. If that was what he meant, we reject that. But I don't think it is. So with that by way of intro... What do we think? Are you challenged by it, uh, challenged in the good way as I am, or am I missing something that we shouldn't be thinking of? Chuck? Uh, can you back to the previous slide? Yeah. Um, so I, I, the
3: good name of the pastor is his power. Um, I don't know. I think, I think I hear what he's saying when he writes that, but I'm, that sits a little off with me
1: as you know, the word of God is his power. Mm-hmm. Um, his good name is certainly, his reputation is
3: impactful to his ability to influence and, and minister to his congregation for sure. Uh, so I, I think I'd like, I would, I would ask him a question on that. Like, can you clarify that for me? What do you mean by that? Okay. Um, and, but I do think, personally, like how we talk about the sermon afterwards with each other and on the car ride home in front of kids, that's convicting. How are we challenging ourselves to, to digest the sermon in a way that's healthy versus saying, "Oh, that illustration didn't really sit with me," or "I don't think that's what he meant." The day. Yeah.
4: It's about who's present in conversation because you know it's one thing if you're talking with somebody else who's like theologically interested in like the the whys and the whats of the sermon, then if, then a discussion. What you're doing is you're making it to them seem as though that message was wrong or unbiblical, which it may not have been. right? Even if you're pointing it out as being a, a small thing, it can still be taken to be much more than that, and you could do a ton of damage.
0: That's how I take it. Erica? I, I, think, um, I, I know that like, the bold and the underline is just like... Those are just my additions, yeah.
2: Bible say about this. Like, does the Word of God testify? Like, that's just general. Like, I read almost anything. That's generally what comes to mind. Like, what does the Bible? What does God say about this? And so, like, in my mind, like, I have some questions about. Like, does the Word of God bear this out? And like, especially like what Chuck is saying about the good of the pastor is his power. Like, that right there, that's an alarming <coughs> statement for me. Like, right away, because like our power isn't in who we are; it's in who Christ is. So nobody are. Their works aren't their power. Nobody does that. So like there's some things where it's like, I. It, there's a lot of questions that I have set like the wrong dichotomy up. Like are we missing like just general Christian instruction
0: about like, how to treat church... Yeah, I I think that's fair. Um I think I disagree a little bit, but it's okay. Um so on the one hand, I mean I absolutely agree. The pastor's power is the word of Christ. I think that's probably, I think he would agree with this too. I think he's just suggesting that the pastor's ability to be heard, particularly by non-believers, in part is tied up in his reputation. And so to the extent that we, can, that we don't undermine his reputation with unbelievers and those who are not as sophisticated uh, in their knowledge, I think that's a reasonable way to read this. It's the way I do. But if we read it the other way, then it's wrong and we should reject it. Um, And I, I take your point about, I think that's reasonable to say, nope, there's no biblical mandate that we should particularly guard the name of the pastor. But I think his point that the pastor is a public man and a recognized leader in the cause of Christ, and that makes him in particular a target of the enemy, and that if our pastor is a particular target of the enemy then we as members of the congregation ought to be. I, I think that's a reasonable uh, inference that we should particularly be concerned to support him and to work against the enemy as he is targeted. So I can't point you to a verse that says that, but I think that's a reasonable inference. Um, but I take your point, and I think, I think this is a disagreement that is okay. We are allowed to have disagreements, and it's completely cool. Bob? Bob? Mm. as far as it going forward. So Scripture does
5: speak to that for all of us, not just the pastor.
0: Yeah. But, and to, that's, I think, to, in line with Erica's point about biblical uh, mandates not to slander, uh, regardless of who it is. Somebody in the back. Barrett? or something. And again, we talked last week uh, also about Paul himself commends the Bereans for not just receiving what he says as the gospel truth, but checking it against the scriptures. So we need to remember that as well. Michael?
6: I think the good
0: the, uh, I'll come to you, Mark. Good name
6: of the pastor. I don't want your arm I to get the, tired, arguments regarding we come from good and necessary consequence, or that, and there's probably not, if you're saying a verse that says, do this because for pastor, the Matthew Jesus, be eligible. You know how much more within the mind those of his household. And Jesus is sending out the disciples who are, um, you know, heralding the gospel. To be paying careful attention to how we interpret what people say, um, slow down as we think we have misunderstanding, and I think that'll help us you know, to not second guess their motives, um, you know, to not be offended by something they say just so quickly or out of hand or something, and uh, you know, that will help us, I think, guard. Their reputation and others by not misinterpreting their motives, misinterpreting what they said based on not knowing their motives of the heart.
0: Yeah, that's what I take this last line to mean. Let it be hinted that the fault is with the hearer, not the message. Mark?
1: I'm looking at Paul. And Paul was, uh, had more of a vested interest in his flock than he did it himself. He would admit his fault, admit all the things that he had done wrong ad nausea. And point to Christ as the only thing that he that. So to, uh, to say he was protecting himself from those things, uh, he depended on God for that. I think often we have pastors come on, on two camps. One is the humility of realizing that Christ is who they serve and who they are stewardships on behalf of over the clock. And then you have this other where you have the authority that they, they uphold. And so uh, I, I'm i grateful for who we have here, but we have other churches that, that show that dichotomy strongly. Yeah. And so you have to be careful. Are we upholding our pastor for what God has done and their uh, dependence and uh, upholding of the calling, as, as we, the last for or the last semester here, I'm sorry.
0: Your absence has been noted. I got I got my list. I've noted when you missed. Yeah, no, it's a great point. Uh, and uh, as you were speaking, another thing I thought of that is, I think, a sinful tendency related to what you were saying is our tendency to pick a team and my team right or wrong no matter what. And so that that I not simply be defending the pastor because he's... I've decided to be at this church, and therefore he's mine. That we're defending him in his work for Christ and because of his mission. That's not what you were saying, but it, I thought of it as you were talking. And then Erica. I wanted to make a quick point about
4: that. Okay.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that's what he's saying. I think which, again, I think the whole context is he's talking about our response to the sermons that he preaches. Yeah, but I don't think that. Again, that's not in the that's in the context of loving and forgiving one another. Yeah. I think he is. I mean, I think as we, I think if we read it just for face value, I think. He, I mean, he's talking about when the when the pastor has a bad and off day on a sermon. I, I don't think even. No, I agree. I think, I think we should not try. I think we can misread this by making it say more than it does, and we ought not to do that in the same way that we ought not to misread what Matter Tim says as saying more than what they say. Chuck? Yeah, I, I was thinking, Michael,
3: He has to choose to, who is he going to invest his moment of attack on? And to Mike's point, like, why would he choose to attack a pastor who's doing the wrong thing well? Mm.
0: Chris, did you have something or have we moved past it?
3: There's this idea of them being a bit of a public person, the way you might meet an off duty cop or judge or something. Like, oh, your position is a little bit different than other people's positions. And so I feel like that might tie in as well. But just getting to the
0: We wouldn't be Presbyterians and we wouldn't be Reformed if we didn't look very deeply at the specific, precise meaning of every word. But I think, I think we can give some grace uh, in uh, trying to read the best interpretation into what this man is saying. Uh, and if he didn't mean it that way, then we reject it anyway, so it doesn't matter. So, uh, closing out what was going to be one week of talking about uh, our duties to our pastors and is now on week three. Um, I have suggested that uh, as I looked through and thought about this for some time that, and, and used um, a couple of excellent resources, that we could bin these into paying them, respecting them with all the caveats I've already mentioned, encouraging them, and in particular encouraging them by showing up and listening to them, being teachable, trying to hear what they have to say that is for us, promoting unity within the church and working against disunity as a way to help encourage them in their leadership of the church, guarding their reputations we've just talked about and praying for them and their wives and their families, their children. And again, the quote that I took out of uh, uh, the book that I've primarily been using that I thought summed all this up was that we should take care to promote his happiness and usefulness to us and to the church. So I will close out that section. You're welcome to continue to give me feedback on it. Well, let's uh, let me just ask before we completely move off it because I wrote it on my notes. Is there anything we're missing from this list? Anything I haven't brought up that we should consider as part of? what we owe, and maybe owe is too strong a word, what we should do towards our pastors. Joel? Since
3: in our polity, it's the congregation that calls the pastor. Uh, in a democracy, you know, sometimes we're like, well, power comes from me. I have to have an opinion on everything. How does the dissolution work? Like, what does the polity say? Because it raises that question given the previous couple of slides. What if something does happen, right? What's the right mode? We know,
0: like, what's the right mode for moving out with that? And I think yeah. get on this on the Matthew just a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what does the
3: Book of Church Order say? If there is something serious, what is the appropriate biblical and honoring way to go about that? That might be something that might be important.
0: Yeah, that's a fair point. And, of course, I forgot to bring my BCO this week. Um, uh, the BCO does have a chapter devoted to the dissolution um of the relationship between in the in the PCA between the pastor uh, and the congregation, including sort of different. I mean, it's why we had to do a bunch of votes with uh, Philip correcting us everywhere on Robert's rules rules of order as we dissolved our pastoral relationship with Deckard for his retirement. Um, but it also has, in the case of uh, of uh, misconduct by the sake of the pastor, uh, on the part of the pastor. Um, so without going through. That language, because I didn't bring it with me. Um, Any thoughts on what is the right way? When, When all my caveats get thrown away, and the pastor is guilty of scandalous sin, we as a congregation have called him to be our pastor. I think the question is then, what do we do when we reach a point where we think he should not be our pastor anymore? And we have strong grounds for that. Is that it? Uh,
3: you know, Cora's rebellion wasn't brought up, but right, Cora and Dathan. Yeah, they should not be more murmuring. But let's say in another situation, the the leader of the congregation
7: is in is in the wrong. What is? Yeah. What what ought we do? Yeah. Phil. So? I think this is one instance where we can be so thankful that the Church of Jesus Christ is more than just our local congregation. That we have just within our own county, the surrounding counties. Uh, so many other faithful churches part of our presbytery that we can um, we can reach out to for help and have uh, it, it's more than just you know a cage fight between a minister and a congregation that that we're bringing in other godly people from the surrounding congregations to help right. us through that and uh, I think the BCO talks about that and there's several examples of that throughout scripture and and part of why I'm just thankful that the Church is more than just
0: our local body. I'm bringing up my BCO online, just lest you think I'm ever without it. Somebody, was it Dave?
5: session then we'll deal with it. If the session can't, then it's the appeal to the presbytery.
0: Yeah, yeah. With with higher level courts, um, so the it's chapter thirty four in the BCO is specifically special rules pertaining to process against a minister and teach uh, a teaching elder. Um, it lays out what Dave just described. Um, it says if anyone knows a minister to be guilty of a private offense, he should warn him in private. So this is following. Uh, the prescriptions from the New Testament, warn him in private, but if the offense be persisted in or become public, he should bring the case to the attention of some other minister in the presbytery. And then it goes into the process that Dave described of the session, and then uh, a a court of the presbytery, um, and if the it says... However, if the presbytery refuses to act in doctrinal cases or cases of public scandal and two other presbyteries request the General Assembly to assume original jurisdiction, then the General Assembly, our highest court uh, over the entire denomination, then takes jurisdiction, and so there is a, a court process for that. Chuck? Um, this might fall under respect, but we should submit to them. Submit? Should we have submit on the list? Suggesting Again, with all the caveats, not submitting in cases of abuse or, or of sin. Um, Mark?
1: If they're speaking from Scripture, then we submit to the Scripture. And, and that's really the intent of pastors, is to relay God's Word and God's instruction. So if we're not submitting at that point, we're really going against God.
0: Yeah, and remember Matt's uh, sermon to us. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, remember Matt's sermon uh, three four weeks ago on our conscience, where in Romans, uh, our responsibility to God gave us, he gives us pastors to, to preach to us truth. He also gives us a conscience, and we ought not to sin against our conscience. So uh, let me shift gears in the time we have remaining today uh, and talk a little bit about swearing vows and oaths in the context of the church. So, um, oops, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, So this is uh, the oath of office that I and Joel take uh, as officers in the U.S. military. Uh, I, Jonathan Anthony Schein, do solemnly swear that I will... uh, I, Jonathan Anthony Schein, having been appointed an officer in the United States Army in the rank of colonel, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, on and on. Did I miss anything so far? I did. You guys missed the Ora Firm part. <laughs> Anybody know why Ora Firm is on there? It's a religious exemption. Ora Firm is on there for uh, Christian fundamentalists. fundamentalists, which in my mind is sort of the precursor term to what is evangelicals today, but back when the oath was formulated, it was for Christians who were serving in the military who said, it is against my religion, my Christian religion, to swear, to swear an oath. And yet, in the PCA, we have a number of oaths that we swear So let's start there uh, and talk about whether we think oaths are biblical, Uh, what are they, what what are oaths, why do we make them, when are they appropriate, and uh, then where we'll go over the next several weeks is talking about when we make them in this church. Um, But first we have to get over whether we think they're biblical or not. Obviously our church thinks they are, or we wouldn't do them. But where does this challenge come from? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And I don't want to minimize it because it's a a good challenge. Why do people not want to take an oath and instead affirm some people? Matthew chapter 5. This is... Uh, Beginning part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So if Jesus said that, how can we have a bunch of oaths that we make in our church? Barrett? So that's a good challenge to the, to the sort of straightforward reading of this. And that's in the New Testament. So here and then Erica. I'm sorry, tell me your name. John. John. So a lot in what John said um, that I want to get to, and I know we won't get to today. So uh, we'll 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 break down a number of those things that you said as we go forward, Erica. I think like, maybe possibly why we go here is uh, in Matthew five, it addresses lots of
2: things: anger, oaths, and in Jesus' teaching here, he's actually not doing away with any of those things. He's actually making them bigger. Yeah. He's actually making them cover greater things than they did under. Testament law. So, like, divorce is, or lust is, like, a bigger issue than just it is something. So I'm wondering if Matthew 5 here, you know, the oath, he's not doing away with oaths. He's not saying, like, an oath isn't any good. He's actually saying, like, if you say you'll do something, it's like taking an oath. Like, every, like you, you have to say what you mean and then you say all the time. Not just if you, like, stick, like, a, in God's name on the end of it. I, I'm wondering if that's, like, what's going on here in Matthew 5. It's making it bigger, not doing away
0: with something. Yeah, I think that at least for our, our denomination, I think that's our understanding of it, is, that, is exactly what Erica said. The only thing I'll, because I'll, I can't say any of it better than what you said, the only thing I'll add is is that I think he's warning against frivolous oaths, against sort of every statement that I say. I say, no, I swear, or um, yeah, uh, what did you say, uh, in Jesus' name, kind of in in a frivolous way. I think that's at least part of what Christ is doing here.
1: It's more of an inquiry than, a, than an answer to a statement. You have covenants and you have oaths. And covenants being, being between two or more, and oaths being one sided. I'm, I'm giving an oath to you for something. Hmm. But I'm at a loss as to what are the different kinds of oaths versus covenants. Covenants, some of them have very dire um, penalties, associated with. That. Do all
0: have some of that same um, inference? Or is there a yeah, so uh, let me give you the same answer I gave John. Let's take some time to, to go through. Uh, I gave you the other handout I gave you is what I want to work through today and next week. So this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So if you remember the Westminster Confession of Faith, part of our constitution for our denomination. We believe it's an accurate summary of the doctrines that are, that are taught uh, in the entire Bible. And interesting to me that it has an entire chapter on, uh, the chapter is entitled, Of Lawful Oaths and Vows. And so I've given you the whole thing in the one-page handout, uh, and what I want to do is walk through these. What I'm using for this is uh, a really good book, uh, that all of our officers read um, and, and study together called Confessing the Faith by a guy named Chad Van Dixhorn. Um, this guy found uh, in somebody's attic somewhere uh, a box with the notes that a guy took while he was attending the conference that resulted in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So what what he does in his book in the in the sort of standard published Westminster Confession, it doesn't have any scriptural references, but he's got these handwritten notes that, that a guy took where he, he writes out the scriptures that they referred to and that they discussed as the, the de- Westminster Divines were developing uh, the Confession of Faith. And so uh, what's really useful about the book is... Uh, it's, you're able to connect specifically the, the passages in scripture that they were, were looking at when they developed this specific language. Uh, and so that's primarily what I'm using. So uh, let's just look at this first one real quickly and then we'll we'll dive back in next week. So the first paragraph says a lawful oath is part of religious worship so we're saying it's it, this is a worship a, a part of our broadly defined our act of worship, a lawful oath, is a part of religious worth worship wherein, upon just occasion, the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserts or promises and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. And the first uh, scripture reference is Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So back to Barrett's point at the beginning that the scriptures do say they give occasions where we should swear oaths, but only by what? Only by his name, so solemnly calleth God to witness, calls God to witness what he asserts. Then it references Deuteronomy 6.13. These two are the references for that first uh, paragraph. Deuteronomy 6.13 says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And then going on, you should not go after other gods. So, yeah. Oh, sorry. This is
7: kind of, I agree with everything Erica said earlier, and, and kind of going along that, you'll notice that Jesus,
0: the one thing Jesus doesn't say is don't swear in God's name. He lists right. all
7: sorts of things that you shouldn't swear by, which actually is completely in accord with what's said originally in Deuteronomy. And in other places in God's Word, people would say, Oh, well, if I swear by the temple, then I don't really have to keep my oath. But if right. I swear by the gold of the temple, then I do. And, and it all comes back to Jesus and, and Deuteronomy really being in agreement that, that when we swear, it's only before God and in
0: His name. Yeah, great point. So in this first paragraph, it emphasizes the idea that oaths are an act of worship. And that it is a solemnly calling on God to witness whatever it is we're swearing to. And, uh, this is one of the points John was making earlier, to judge us according to the truth or falsehood of what we swear. And it's going to break that down some more as we move forward, but you're going to have to come back next week to get that part of the lesson. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Our Father, thank you for our church, thank you for the many ways that you work in and through us to love one another, to encourage and exhort one another, and to learn more and more of your truth as you reveal it to us and through us to each other. I pray that you would be with Pastor Matt in particular and our ruling elders as they lead us in worship this morning and that you would be present among us, and that you would bless our worship and receive it from us. Amen.